Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station Podcast, a show about learning the Rust programming language. This is episode 21, Keeping Your Types Undercover. Today we're going to take a step back and look at a couple relatively easy tools in Rust. These are some of my favorite kinds of things in programming languages. Tools which are not at all complicated or arcane, but which make the experience of programming in the language much better in some way or another. Today we're going to talk about two different kinds of type declarations, type aliases and new types, with a couple variations on how we can build the latter. Let's start with type aliases. The simplest kind of type alias is something like type email equals string semicolon. That defines a type you can use throughout your program, email. This is just a really convenient way of making your types more descriptive. After all, there are lots of kinds of strings out there, and giving things good names is a really helpful way of clarifying exactly what you mean. Instead of being left wondering, is this an email or a name or something else, the type itself can express some of that intent. But one important thing to understand is that type aliases like this are tools of convenience, not of type safety. When you write type email equals string semicolon, you're not creating a special new type. All you are doing is creating a nickname for the longer type. If you're coming from Haskell, this is not a new type, in other words. I have often wished there were a native facility for doing new types in Rust, because usually when I create this kind of thing in my own code, it's not for a shorthand version, but rather because I actually want some type safety around something. More on that in a moment. Even though this is just an alias, a nickname, these kinds of type aliases can be extremely helpful. There are plenty of places where you're perfectly fine accepting the type being aliased, but you now get to express to whoever is reading your code the actual point of that particular type. For example, we might have a function that sends an email, but let's say that in this particular context, we have a good reason to name the function send message. This is a slightly silly example, as send email would normally be a better name, of course, but I'm using it to illustrate the point more clearly. In that case, we might have a function definition which would read something like this. fn send message, open parentheses, to address, colon email, content, colon string, and with a return type of a result, with the types being unit and error code, and then the body of the function. It's really obvious, just looking at or listening to that signature, that there's supposed to be a difference between the to address parameter and the content parameter because their types are named differently. Now, of course, a caller could still get that wrong, and we have a solution for cases where we want to make sure the caller can't get that wrong, which we'll come back to in a few minutes. But at a minimum, the type signature, not just the names of the arguments, but the actual types in use, make it even more explicit what kind of thing we have here. It even clarifies that sending this message will send it specifically to an email address, not a physical address. So that's a win, and a real win, even in this simple and admittedly rather silly example. Of course, precisely because this example is rather silly, it might not be obvious where you'd really want to use something like this. Aliases for string might clarify your intent slightly, but good function and parameter names are actually probably more helpful here. The biggest places in Rust where these kinds of things are useful are type signatures you have to repeat a lot and complex type signatures. And especially complex type signatures you have to repeat a lot. Let's start with just oft-repeated type signatures, though. We'll start with a type alias you're almost certainly familiar with if you've spent much time with Rust. Standard IO result. 
Normally, the result types have two parameters, T for the type returned in the success case and E for the type returned in the error case. However, standard IO results has only one type parameter, T, for the expected type. That's because standard IO results, generic over T, is a type alias for result, the standard result, generic over T and standard IO error. Since all errors in this case will be of the type standard IO error, we don't need to make users, or the standard library team for that matter, type that out everywhere they want to return a result within standard IO. They can just write that it returns a result with a type parameter of string, for example, instead of a result parameterized by string and error. To make this work, we just write a generic type alias, because yes, type aliases can also be generic. Type result generic over T equals result generic over T comma standard IO error. If you look in the Rust docs or source, in fact, that's almost exactly what you'll see. The only difference is that the full namespace isn't written out because the standard IO namespace is already in the context. Another way to think about this is that we're making a generic type more specific. Standard, result, results, generic over T and E can take anything as its type parameters. Standard IO results generic over just T can take anything for that T type parameter, but it's much more specific than the standard result type because it always and only returns standard IO error for its error type. The other major scenario we care about is when we have a complicated type that we just don't want to write out over and over and over again. It's not hard to bump into these in Rust, especially when dealing with smart pointers. Imagine, for example, that you have an arc wrapping a vec, wrapping a result of types string and error code. Even though that's a totally concrete type, we don't have any generics in sight as we did a minute ago, you really don't want to have to write that out as a whole type every time, or at least I don't. So instead, you could give that a good local name. And the type would still be exactly the same, but you could always just use the type alias instead. You could name it ThreadSafe Collection and just say that anywhere you need it, and it simplifies your code base enormously. Now I want to pause for a moment before moving on to quote-unquote new types to trace out an implication of the fact that these really are just convenient names for longer types. Because that is the case, any function that works on the full type name also works on the type alias, and vice versa. That ends up being particularly handy when dealing with things which implement traits like iterator. If you can map over the type being aliased, you can map over the alias too. All well and good. Those use cases really are important, and those conveniences are not to be understated. But what about the times when we don't want the original type to be interchangeable with the new type that we're defining? I used the example of an email address initially, and we might well want to distinguish between an email address and a general string. This is where things like Haskell's new types come in handy, but Haskell is the only language I know of that has them. I'm sure others do, but it's the only one I know of. Most other languages in the same broad lineage as Rust have a nice, relatively low cost, though not quite no cost way to accomplish the same thing, and Rust is no exception here. We have two closely related ways to create types which are distinct from a type checking perspective for this purpose. One is a tuple struct, the other is a single case enum. These two approaches have the same result. They just wrap another type in a distinct type declaration, which gets type checked. We'll see which one we would prefer to use in a few minutes. First, how to write them. For a tuple struct, you'd write it out like pub struct email struct, 
open parentheses, string, close parentheses, semicolon. Then you can declare an instance by writing something like let address equal email struct, open parentheses, quote, hello at neurostation.com, quote, and then the dot into method call before writing your close parentheses and semicolon. Remember that dot into takes the string literal, which is a string slice reference, and makes it an owned string. That's a fairly convenient way of getting strings when you need to in places like this. When you use this address, which we declared, you can destructure it. Say we were using an external library which had a send function which just took a string. To unwrap it, we could either just use the .0 accessor, which gets the first thing in a tuple struct, or, and this is my preference, explicitly destructure it. We haven't talked about destructuring assignment before, though, so before I talk through how you would do that, let's talk about what destructuring is. Destructuring assignment uses the same kind of syntax as pattern matching, but it does it outside the body of a match expression. It lets you bind directly to any public member in the interior of a struct or enum variant. You should note, though, that you can't do this to enums outside the single variant case because you have to match against all its variants, and we'll come back to that in a minute. It's important. Destructuring is an incredibly handy way for getting at the internals of a given type without having to write something like let the value equal the instance of the type dot the value. Going back to our email struct example, that would look like this. Remember, we had created an address variable with the value attached. Now we could write let email struct, open parentheses, email string, close parentheses, equal address, semicolon. Then if we had a send function, we could just write send email string. Email string, remember, was inside the parentheses of email struct, and that was on the left side of the equal sign. If you're having a hard time picturing this, you can take a look at the show notes. I have written all of these examples up there. I wasn't exaggerating when I said destructuring assignment has the same syntax as pattern matching arms. I was being exact, in fact. That means that any kind of destructuring you can do in a pattern match, you can do in destructuring. So let's say we had a more complicated struct, one with a couple fields. Struct thing to destructure with a field of type string and another of type i32. We could declare an instance of that like usual. Let thing equal thing to destructure with a field having the value of quote neat unquote dot into again and another having the value 42. Then we could destructure it. And handily enough, we could rename things in pattern matches. So, for example, if we didn't want to use another as the name of a variable locally, and, well, you can imagine why you might not want to, we could call it can rename instead. Let thing to destructure, open curlies, a field, comma, another, colon, can rename, close curlies, equal thing, where thing, recall, was the binding we just created a moment ago. Again, all in the show notes, but here we've created a local name, can rename, which maps to the struct field name, another. Destructuring assignment like this isn't necessarily something you need all the time, but when it's handy, it's very handy. Also, this will feel very familiar to anyone coming from JavaScript. It is precisely the same kind of syntax as destructuring assignment in ES6 and later with objects. Now, Getting back to some of the original ideas we were talking about, let's look at the other way of building distinct types. The single variant enum. You would declare one of these by writing pub enum, email enum, open curlies, and only one variant, address, 
open parentheses, string, close parentheses, and then the close curlies. Creating an instance of the enum is just like creating any other enum instance. Let email equal email enum colon colon address, open parentheses, quote hello at neurostation.com, close quote, dot into method, close parentheses, semicolon, your usual declaration. Notably, however, you can use destructuring assignment here, just like in the struct tuple case, because it is a single case enum. Let email enum colon colon address, open parens, email string, close parens, equal email, semicolon. And again, send email string. You can probably tell, even just in listening to me walk through these verbally, for which thank you for bearing with me, that you're always basically better just using a tuple struct in these cases. There's a lot of extra keyboard mashing involved for no actual gain by using an enum for this. In fact, you're using an enum tuple struct variant when you do this, instead of just using a tuple struct. I brought up the enum approach for two reasons, though. First, so you know what you're looking at if you do happen to bump into it, if someone out there prefers it for some reason. And second, because if you're coming from another language with tagged unions, F-sharp, Elm, etc., that might be your first inclination, since tagged unions, which are analogous to our enums, are how you usually build these kind of type-checked variants there. And again, it does work in Rust. There's just no reason to do it here since we have tuple structs available. There are a couple more challenges we face when we define a custom type like this. One is that, unlike in the case of a type alias, we don't get all the various implementations which apply to the inner type for free. You can implement them fairly easily, of course, and I provide a simple example of implementing iterator in the code samples for this episode so you can see how it might work, but you do still have to implement them yourself. And that does dramatically decrease the convenience of types like this. So you'll have to evaluate whether the work of implementing all of those APIs yourself is worth the extra type safety you get from defining the type as a tuple struct rather than just as a type alias. And that trade-off won't necessarily always be perfectly obvious. Sometimes when implementing a new type like this, you want all this type safety and you want to be able to use the underlying type in some places without having to unwrap it explicitly every time. To do that, you can implement the deref trait so that calls can take advantage of deref coercions. In our email address example then, we might implement deref for the email struct with a target type of string. Because string in turn implements deref for stir slices, you could then pass your email struct by reference to anything which expects a string reference or more likely a string slice reference. Similarly, if you wanted to be able to move the contents out of the struct into an email, you could implement into string for email struct. And then anywhere you were ready to move ownership into something that required an own string, you could just do address.into. Of course, you should be careful with these kinds of tools. It's very easy to actually just end up throwing away a lot of the type safety you're trying to buy yourself with these kinds of quote unquote new types in the first place. But at least you have the option. My rule of thumb for these kinds of things, across languages, not just in Rust, is that the more critical to the business rules something is, the more likely I am to write a real type and whatever custom implementations I need. By contrast, where it's just a convenience issue, where I don't want to write that same long type signature with multiple layers of type parameters over and over and over again, there I'm happy to use type aliases instead. And that's about all there is to say about type aliases and wrapper types or new types. They're really handy features, but they're not especially complicated features. Thanks to this month's $10 or more sponsors, Anthony Deschamps, Chris Palmer, 
Ben Amesfabode, Dan Abrams, Daniel Cullen, David W. Allen, Matt Rutter, Peter Tillemans, Philip Keller, Rafe Levine, and Vesa Kailavirta. As always, thanks as well to all the other sponsors and to everyone who helps other people find the show, whether by just telling a friend, by rating and reviewing it in iTunes or recommending it in another podcast directory, or by sharing it around on social media. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash neurostation, or you can give one-off contributions at a number of other sources on the show website. You can find show notes for this episode, including code samples for everything I discussed, at neurostation.com slash show underscore notes slash E021 for episode 21. The show is on Twitter at neurostation, and I am at Chris Kreitcho. Do tweet at me with news, topic ideas, etc. You can also respond in the threads on the Rust user forums, Reddit, or Hacker News, or, and this is always my favorite, just send me an email at hello at neurostation.com. Until next time, happy coding.